From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. Things are heating up at the Ohio State House. Legislators have introduced three good pro-gun bills and two really bad anti-gun bills. Plus, there's growing support for a pair of joint resolutions to raise the bar on changing Ohio's constitution from a mere 50% plus one vote to 60%, a move that would protect all rights, including Second Amendment rights. That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by Rob Sexton, BFA's Legislative Affairs Director. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dean. It's great to be back. Well, Rob, the weather is still a bit chilly outside, but the Ohio State House is certainly warming up, so I thought it was time to have you on the podcast to fill us in on some of the details. And the big thing that we want to discuss in this podcast is the thing that's been all over the news recently, these uh, joint resolutions in the House and the Senate. And we'll talk about that because I'm not sure everybody really understands the difference between legislation and resolutions and all the talk about the special election and so on. But before we get to that, since I have you on the podcast, let's just breeze through some of the legislation that is uh, pending. Uh, We're early in the session, only about three months in. We do have some firearm bills. Three we support and two we oppose. Rob, we have HB 51, which is essentially the sanctuary bill. This is similar to what we had last session, sponsored by Mike Lojcik and Gene Smith. We have SB 32, Civil Immunity for Self-Defense for Nonprofits. This is a bill by uh, Tim Schaefer. And then we have HP, or I'm sorry, SB 58, to prohibit requiring firearms liability insurance. Now, the sanctuary bill and all that stuff, we've discussed quite a bit on previous podcasts. I did want to touch very quickly on the civil immunity bill. And this is what I've referred to as a kind of a fix-it bill. We had a fix-it bill previously to add nonprofits to the organizations that are covered for civil immunity if you have to engage in self-defense. So employers, colleges, and political subdivisions are named in the law as having civil immunity. And we had a previous bill that added nonprofits. And this time around, the bill wants to add specific individuals. So if you're at an event of a nonprofit or at a church, you have to use self-defense, you have some level of civil immunity. And I think that this is really about the churches, right? Because if you're carrying in a church or if you have a self-defense team in the church, you want to make sure that there's some civil immunity for that so you can actually have the team operate there. Right. Yeah, I think you... uh you sum this up at the beginning accurately. This is all sort of tightening up uh, what happens in the event someone has to unfortunately make use of their right of self-defense 
and how they're treated civilly. You know, we've covered the criminal aspects of this, that you have the right to defend yourself. You have the right uh, to stand your ground. But we, we, we haven't yet got all of the law tied up properly about whether you're left holding the legal bag, you know, after you were to exercise that right. So this, this might be, I would think, the last piece of that civil immunity that's needed to protect you from civil liability in the event you're forced to defend yourself. Yeah, and that's why I've called it a fix-it bill, because I think, really, these were just oversights when the civil immunity was added previously. So they right. had to, you know, they kind of forgot nonprofits. They had to add that in there. And now they want to make sure that individuals have that immunity as well. So obviously, we support that because there are a lot of churches that do have these defense teams or have individuals carrying. And then we have uh, SB 58, and this is about the firearm liability insurance. Rob, I look at this as kind of uh, economics 101. You know, if you want to reduce the consumption of something, you increase the cost, right? And that, that's what this is about. It's not about insurance. It's about trying to prevent people who want to force you to have insurance if you have a firearm or require fees of some kind, because that just makes it more expensive to own firearms. So it's just a way of pre-punishing people with firearms so you have fewer of them who actually have the firearms. Now, that's exactly right. I, um, you know, I've done a lot of work over the years with hunting organizations, and we call this strategy by the anti-hunting organizations death by a thousand cuts, right? There's two ways to ban gun rights. One is just to outright say you can't own this or you can't own that. The other way to ban your gun rights is to just tedious you in the ground. It's going to cost a little bit more for this. It's going to take a little bit more training for that. We're going to tax you for this. We're going to force you to buy that. And by the time you're all said and done, it becomes far too difficult to actually own a gun. And that's what this concept is looking to eliminate. This is preventative medicine, and it's a good bill. So I should have mentioned that SB 58, uh, to prohibit the requiring of firearms liability insurance, sponsored by Terry Johnson and Teresa Gavaron. So we support all of these bills, the sanctuary bill, the civil immunity bill, and the uh, prohibiting firearms liability insurance bill. And then there are a couple of bills here that we uh, oppose, and both of these are pretty bad bills, HB 62, and this is basically about rolling back stand your ground and reimposing a duty to retreat. So this is all about going back to having simple castle doctrine where there's no duty to retreat in your home or a vehicle, but we were able to expand that to any place you can legally be. And they want to roll that back, Rob. Right. So, you know, the, the the repeal of the duty to retreat is one of the fundamental accomplishments, uh, you know, the BFA has been a part of. So if, if they're successful, then, you know, the next time someone is under attack, they have to give some thought to, could I run? Could I hide to protect yourself? And obviously, you know, your first obligation when you're under duress is, how can I best survive and protect my loved ones? Which I think all of us are going to do anyway. The question is just when it's all said and done, are you going to find yourself under indictment? Yeah, this is just one of those concepts of, you know, being guilty 
and you have to prove yourself innocent, right? Right. Because, you know, self-defense is one thing, but then you have to proactively prove that you could not retreat. And, yes. and that's so it's, in other words, you're, you're considered guilty in that regard until you prove yourself innocent. Yeah, it's a terrible idea. And, you know, it's it's one of the things that, uh, you know, we're proud we were able to deal with, I think, a little over two years ago now. Uh, and this bill would roll it back. Fortunately, you know, we're in an era where the radical left doesn't have a whole lot of say of what goes on at the state house. So I don't think this bill has much of a chance. But I think it's noteworthy just to let people know that these guys never stop. You know, these things that we have fought for and achieved together, like constitutional carry, like castle doctrine and duty to retreat, armed staff in schools, preemption, the other side is never going to stop trying to take those back. Yeah, that's right. Well, and this bill and the next bill, SB 78, neither one has had a hearing, but absolutely nothing has happened. So this next one is really even worse. SB 78 to repeal statewide preemption. So this is kind of like the holy grail at the state level. This one's sponsored by Herschel Craig and Catherine Ingram, and they basically just want to wipe away Ohio Revised Code 9.68. So the the effect of that, and I've said this a million times, that there are over 2,000 cities, villages, and townships in Ohio, and the effect of this bill, if they could roll back statewide preemption, would be to allow every single one of those entities to set up their own firearm laws. You could not leave your house, Rob, without becoming a criminal. That's essentially what they want. You know, it's one thing to make things more expensive. This would just make everything a patchwork of laws. Everywhere you go, grocery store, church, work, everywhere could have a different set of gun laws. Yeah, it's such a terrible idea. And you talk about death by a thousand cuts. If you have 17 different sets of rules between your home and your place of business, for example, how are you ever going to know that you're actually able to comply with the law? It's preemption is, as you say, the crown jewel. It's the one that matters. It's the cornerstone. Well, and, and, you know, even liberals uh, agree with this to some extent, although I'm sure that they would love to see this rolled back. You know, I've I've talked to Democrats and those on the left about this, and they really do scratch their heads sometimes. Like, well, no, we don't want to entrap people. And I would say, well, that's exactly what you would do with something like this. And not that they would push back. They would, again, I think be very happy to pass something like that. But that's not going to go anywhere. I, I I would be shocked if it, you know, even had more than just the sponsor hearing, Rob. Right. M- much like the repeal of, uh, or I'm sorry, the reinstitution of duty to retreat. I don't think either of these bills has a chance. We're very grateful for the current state of affairs with regard to the power of the left. Uh, but it's still noteworthy to know they're still, you know, they're still coming at the wall. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're not going to stop. So, so Rob, let's get down to the main topic here. And this is something that's been in the news. In fact, we've been in the news because I guess we've surprised people by being involved in this issue. And I'm talking about House Joint Resolution 1 and Senate Joint Resolution 2. So, Rob, uh, we testified or you testified on behalf of BFA recently in the Senate for SJR2 
to protect constitutional rights by amending the Ohio Constitution to require a vote of at least 60% of the electors to approve any constitutional amendment. Now, assuming this passes the House and Senate, there could be a special election in August to approve the resolution. And if that happens, we would need every gun owner in the state to go vote because this is a massively important protection for Second Amendment rights in Ohio. But let's first clarify the difference between a legislative bill, which is the thing that we're usually talking about, and a resolution. My understanding, Rob, is that there's very little difference between a resolution and a bill as far as the process is concerned. Both have to go through the House and the Senate, but unlike legislation, a resolution does not require a signature from the governor. And legislation is the thing that we use to change the general laws, like some of these bills that we've been talking about, while customarily a joint resolution is used to make changes to the Ohio Constitution. If I got all of that right. Yes, you, you've, you've summed it up pretty well. Um, the joint resolution is the tool that the legislature uses to put something before the voters to change the Constitution. And joint resolutions do not require the signature of the governor, but they do require 60% approval of both the House and the Senate. So SJR2 is sponsored by Senators Rob McCauley and, and Teresa Gavarone in the Senate. HJR1, which is the companion resolution, is sponsored by Brian Stewart in the House. And, and as we've said, the goal is to raise the bar for altering Ohio's constitution. And it's important to remember that, yes, states have constitutions too. When we're talking about the constitution, we're always referring to the U.S. constitution. But on the state level, we actually do have a constitution. So currently, Rob, when constitutional amendments are placed on the ballot, it only takes a simple majority, in other words, 50% plus one vote, to change the Constitution. So, Rob, literally, one person can change Ohio's Constitution, right? Right, and, and that really is where the problem lies, right? So when we're talking about the Constitution, we're talking about the foundational document that spells out our freedoms, that also spells out the restraints that are placed on our state government. And so when the framers of our Constitution conceived it, you know, changing the Constitution was going to be something special. In the early 20th century, the populist movement was born. There became this groundswell in many states that the people should have a right to change the Constitution. They envisioned that this would be some sort of groundswell grassroots process that would be utilized to change the Constitution. However, the last 40 years have seen this process evolve. And now, those that change the Constitution are the most wealthy big interests that there are in the entire country. So, I think a lot of folks might have an honest question, should we really make it to where it takes 60% to change our constitution? Is that a good idea for gun owners? And I would say, well, unless we think we can match 
Mike Bloomberg's billions? And the answer is, yes, this is a good idea because in today's world, ballot issues are won by the person or the group that has the most money. And uh, it, no matter how many gun owners there are in Ohio, billions with a capital B are hard to, to compete with. And so raising the threshold to 60% just makes it so that only the most important items rise to the level of changing our constitution, which is how it ought to be. And frankly, it matches the same intent of our national framework, which is that it's much harder to change the U.S. Constitution than it is to just simply change American law. Right. And, and we've seen outside groups coming into Ohio seeking to alter laws and our Constitution basically for their own benefit. I was just looking uh, on our in the last election, the midterms in November— there were more than 100 ballot issues all around the country on all kinds of topics, including gun rights. And yes. as you're saying, they're all about money. Whoever has the most money generally wins these things, and you can do an end run around the elected legislature. The argument being made is, you know, from a lot of the papers that, that uh, if you're reading on this issue, it's, wow, this is really undemocratic. You're not going to allow the people to speak. Well, Actually, it's the other way around because these ballot issues do tend to be won by very wealthy donors or outside organizations who have millions of dollars. You you need a lot of money to get it on the ballot because you have to collect the signatures. And then you need even more millions in TV and other types of advertising to educate people on it and, and get them to vote. So basically, it just comes down to who has the most money, that's who's going to get their way. That's right. And and we've seen this uh, all across the country. And we've even seen this with some of our partners, right? So, Dean, of course, you know, Buckeye Firearms Association works in partnership often with the Sportsman's Alliance, which defends the rights of American hunters and trappers and, and uh, fishermen. They've worked in, a, in opposition to 29 ballot issues in 14 different states across the last 45 years. And of those 29, only one has been won by the group that had less money. In other words, the big money has won every time. That point you made about signature gatherers, the big money interests pay professional firms to come in and gather signatures. There's just nothing grassroots. There's just nothing groundswell there's nothing populist about the current ballot issue process and and our constitution is too foundational too critical to allow it to be for sale like that and that's why this supermajority which again mirrors the way things are done federally it's it's much harder to change our US constitution this is very similar we're trying to protect the document that, that is the framework for the freedoms that we actually have. Yeah, and let's be clear about what's at stake. You know, if everyone remembers, when Ohio was just shutting down because of COVID, there was a ballot initiative on universal background checks that was firing up. They were collecting signatures, trying to get on the ballot. And the only reason that didn't happen was because of COVID. They just didn't think they could uh, get the volunteers out there or the paid you know, signature collectors out there 
and they weren't going to get anywhere, so they shut it down. Otherwise, that would have ended up on a ballot. We know very well if that succeeded, the same big money groups would do the same thing for AR bans, magazine bans. They might try to come after the preemption law. So, you know, basically, you have a wealthy donor, you have millions of dollars, you can change our laws. And that that's what it comes down to. There's nothing democratic about that at all, Rob. No, that's right. And so the next question that I, I think a lot of our listeners would probably ask is, why now? You know, what's what's the urgency now? And here's what I would say about that. We're at a unique point where a lot of different Ohio groups are recognizing this vulnerability and they're willing to be at the same table to work on it at the same time. So, for example, uh, the Ohio Chamber of Commerce is interested in working on this. The National Federation of Independent Business uh, chapter in Ohio is interested. The Ohio Restaurant Association, the Ohio Farm Bureau. I mentioned the Sportsman's Alliance. And of course, the news is heavily covered that Ohio Right to Life is very interested. Right now, all of those combined interests, including ours, have yet to be trampled through this constitutional process. So we have a chance to collectively defend the Ohio Constitution. If we wait five or six or seven years to do this, we give big money interests that would ban gun rights or that would put an abortion rights issue on the ballot, or that would raise the minimum wage to $25 an hour, let's say, uh, or you know, an anti-livestock type amendment. These are things that are occurring all over the country. Once those begin to happen, you lose members of your coalition that can actually help you get something like this done. So why now? Well, because we're all sitting around the table together to work on it. So that's why it's very important. That's why this rather extraordinary effort has begun. So, Rob, you've mentioned that even the U.S. Constitution is hard to change. My understanding is in order to change the United States Constitution, you need two-thirds votes of both chambers of Congress, which obviously these days would be pretty hard to get. You would need a three-fourths of the state's to ratify it. So if my math is correct, that's 38 states would need to sign on to it. And that puts the bar really high. So again, this is not a radical idea to try to raise the bar. And it's not just the federal level. You know, Ohio is actually among the minority of states that even permit constitutional amendments by initiative petition at all. 32, 32 states do not allow constitutional amendments to be proposed by outside groups. Of the 18 which do allow constitutional amendments by initiative petition, nine of those states, or half, have added some form of enhanced requirement for them to be adopted, and that's red states and blue states. So in Florida, for example, it's 60%. Colorado, it's 55%. New Hampshire, 66%. Illinois, 60%. Arizona, 60%. So... This is not an unusual thing. This is actually pretty common to raise the bar on constitutional changes. That does not change anything about legislation, though, or other kind of changes that you can make, right? Right. You know, uh, voters have the right to initiate a ballot initiative to change just the regular law. 
and that would remain at 50.1%. Voters have a right to repeal through the referendum process a law that is passed by the legislature if they get enough signatures, and that would remain at 50.1%. What we're The only thing we're talking about with SJR2 and HJR1 is the process by which we change the Constitution. And I think that's an entirely reasonable thing that we would want to protect such an important framework for how our freedoms are basically uh, provided. Right. So all of these editorials that you're reading out there talking about how undemocratic this is and how radical it is, don't believe that at all. Because this is not. This this is a common sense protection. It's not just about gun rights. It's about anybody's rights. And I'm sure that a lot of the people out there who are opposing this would be uh, screaming pretty loud if somebody came along. Because there are some rich donors on the gun side, too. And you could probably get something on the ballot to roll back, you know, one of uh, another law or something on abortion or something on immigration. You never know. And they wouldn't like that either. So this is really about protecting everybody's rights, making sure that the system works properly. Yeah, you know, one thing we can count on our media for is, you know, gross exaggeration and hyperbole. Uh, You know, when I testified, I, I actually had an answer to that question about reducing democracy in my back pocket. And that's just one question I did not get asked. but. If you are asked, you just simply need to respond. Are we saying that Illinois is undemocratic? Are we saying that Florida is undemocratic? What are the other states you named? Is New Hampshire undemocratic? And the answer is no. You know, every state has a unique way that it structures itself. That's why we're the United States. But to suggest that if you don't allow the Constitution to be changed, by big money interests getting only 50.1%, that that would be an erosion of democracy to get rid of that system. That's gross hyperbole and, frankly, unsurprising from the way media functions these days. So, Rob, what about this special August election? You know, there's a lot of debate about whether that's actually going to happen. How likely do you think that is? Because that's potentially when this would come up. Yeah. So this is where things get messy, right? And, and, you know, this is a good idea, but it comes with some complications and this August election discussion is part of it. So I think they're the only way that this gets on the ballot is if it happens in August. And here is why I mentioned this table of all these different interests that are joined with us to try to get this done. Among those interests are the right-to-life people, opponents of abortion. Now, there is currently a constitutional amendment proposal being circulated for signatures that would make abortion rights uh, ensconced in the Constitution with virtually no limitations. And, of course, the right-to-life people are fundamentally opposed to that, and that would be on the ballot in November. If we waited until November for this 60.1, or for this, rather, the 60% option, then conceivably in November, we could pass our 60% requirement 
the abortion rights people could pass their amendment and it would require 60% to then remove this all access right to abortion. So obviously the right to life people would never back that, but even more fundamentally, we've been told in no uncertain terms that the House and Senate will not take that chance. They don't want to be responsible for that possibility. So if we're going to do it, it's going to have to happen in August or it's not going to happen until sometime after. So August is the best opportunity to do it. For those that might say, well, why don't we just wait till 24? We certainly could do that. But we we run the risk, as we've just outlined, that the abortion issue would pass, and then we would lose one major player at the table uh, that would be a proponent group. So right now we've got a coalition of some pretty capable grassroots, you know, the small businesses, the restaurants, the farmers, the, uh, the opponents of abortion, the sportsmen, and of course us. That's a pretty darn good team. Like, I like our chances. I don't know if we can win, but I at least think we can make one heck of a, a, a go at it. You wait till 24, you wait till 25. We go back and have that same meeting, and it might be two-thirds the same amount of people or half the same amount of people. And at that point, this whole idea of protecting the Constitution just becomes that much more difficult. Yeah, so a lot of uh, pieces have to fall in place here. We've got to decide on, you know, if this thing's going to pass. We've got to have the special election, and then we have to get people out to vote. So I would just say to all of our listeners, stay tuned Pay attention to this because if this does happen, we're going to need all of you to get out and vote. This is, you know, a special election. It's not something that you would ordinarily have on your calendar. And if we're going to do it, we're going to need to get people out. And the other side, obviously, is going to get people out too. So it's going to be what the what they call a turnout election, Rob. You know, if we can get people out, we can get it passed. If we can't, we won't. So stay tuned. We're going to be covering this on the website and the newsletter and uh, potentially in other podcasts in the future. So, Rob, you have anything else about any of this that we've talked I'll about? Just, I would, yeah, I would just simply say this. Aside from preemption, I cannot imagine a more important election issue for us to be involved in, right? Aside from preemption, this has got to be the most important campaign we could ever be a part of. So while August elections are something we're not typically familiar with, it's very important that we make this a priority if we're able to get this thing before the voters. Rob, I appreciate your taking some time to unpack all of this for us. Keep up the good work and we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks, Dean. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe, and please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at buckeyefirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.